Well, good morning. Hi. It's so nice to be back. Um, I am just so happy to be back at Women's Bible Study. I hope you all had a wonderful summer. I certainly did. Um, Kaylee is growing so fast. You'll see her running around this campus like she owns the place, which I feel like she does now. Um, And most of you probably know, but we found out that we're having a baby boy in March. So we're really excited about that. So I'm just really excited to be together with you, to be diving into God's Word again together, and I'm really looking forward to this year. It's nice to be back in the event center, isn't it? It's nice to be back in here. Um, It feels a little more homey in here. In the worship center, we're more spread out, which I know was necessary at the time, but it's nice to feel a little more community, Um, and so I'm just really glad to be back here. And I'm excited about our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. If you didn't know, that's what we're diving into this semester. And so when I heard the theme of these books, restoration, it just really spoke to my heart as exactly the message that we needed to hear right now. Because isn't that exactly what we're in the midst of? Restoration. Restoration from devastation. We're being restored to a new normal, whatever normal is now. We're learning again what it's like to be together, what a community is all about. We used to run up to one another and give warm hugs without hesitation, and now sometimes we're nervous, (laughs) unsure of what this new life post-COVID looks like. But I think we're in the process of being restored I think that we're realizing what truly matters to us. We're realizing what we so desperately missed. We're realizing what things that we took for granted that are all the more sweet now. So I hope this study on restoration speaks to you as much as it did to me. I pray that through this study, God will show us what it means to be restored by him. We may not get back to where we were before, but God has a plan. He brought us through. He was always in control, and he is going to restore us. I pray to an even better normal than what we had before. So let's begin in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are a God of restorations. I thank you that you're a God who's in control. I pray that as we study this text and as we spend time together, that we will be reminded of that truth, that whatever we face, you are always in control. I thank you that you're a God who has reckless love for us, who searches after us and draws us to yourself, who stirs our hearts like no one else can. Would you stir our hearts today, Lord? Be in our midst. Let us hear from you. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so before we dive into Ezra chapter 1, let's start with a little bit of background on these books that we're studying this semester. So both Kings and Chronicles ended with God's people being taken into exile in Babylon. In 586, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city's defenses and burned the temple broke up and carried away the temple furnishings, and devastated the surrounding area. 
Jeremiah 29.11 is a popular verse that you probably have memorized at some point. But how often do we read the verse that comes right before it? It says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Then comes verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God had a plan for them. He, that plan, however, involved their exile. Ezra and Nehemiah, then, are the story of a people returning from exile, rebuilding their temple, a story of restoration. And they need national restoration, but more than that, they need spiritual restoration. One commentary I read said this, Nothing can be more important for the church today than to recover that sense of the graciousness and greatness of God and to have a renewed vision of his holiness. In such a renewed understanding of God and a deeper sense of his presence lies the key to progress and usefulness. It goes on to say that a study of Ezra is what brings us to this renewed vision of God's holiness. So who wrote the book of Ezra? Many believe that Ezra himself wrote the book, especially because it does contain some of his memoirs later in the book. However, he himself will not appear in this book until chapter 7. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book originally. Many believe they were compiled by the same person. We aren't sure, but that same person may have also compiled Chronicles. So let's just go ahead and look at Ezra chapter 1. So I know we're diving right in this week. So a lot of you probably didn't get your study until today um, or didn't get a chance to look at it. If you did, wonderful. If you didn't, there's so much grace here because we're just diving right in. We're going to go through it together. So don't worry. So let's look at the first five verses of Ezra chapter 1. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem." Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So one commentary I read said that the psalmist's words, unless the the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, is a perfect introduction to this section. From the very first verse, we see who is in control. This pagan king's first move when taking over is to send the exiles home. 
And not only that, but to send them with support, which we're going to get to later. But pausing there, isn't this baffling that this is what he chooses to do? Why would he choose to do this? Well, it says in our text that it's because the Lord moved his heart. This passage and these books in general speak over and over again of the providence of our God. God is always still in control. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. A better word might be stirred up. The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, this pagan ruler. A pagan ruler becomes God's instrument. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. I want to pause there. Do you believe that to be true? Now I want to be cautious starting our study with a political message, but I just have to pause here and ask, do we truly believe this? That all rulers, all people of power... Their heart is in the hands of the Lord. Do we pray as if that were true? Max Lucado actually has a sermon on this passage, and the title of it is When You Are Weary of Washington. (laughs) He says the believer looks at politics through a different lens. We believe first and foremost That God is the God of the nations. Washington does not call the shots. God does. Congress does not direct our future. God does. Cyrus did not know God, nor did he respect him as God. He had his own reasons for doing what he did. But he was used to accomplish the desires of heaven. The destiny of the people laid not in the will of Cyrus, but in the hands of God. And so here we have this proclamation in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. A pagan document that became part of our scripture. God uses history as part of his inspired words. Now this may not have been an overt obvious miracle. But if we see it through the lens of scripture, through the lens of prophecy being fulfilled, we see that this is all quietly initiated by the Lord who stirs the heart of this ruler. I think it's important to note that the reversal of the exile here was not a sudden change of heart in God's part. But it was a plan already announced in the prophetic word. One commentary I read said this. The text of Ezra is rich. It's multi-layered and builds on earlier revelation. This is no flat and dry chronicle. This pulses with the living words of God. This is because with Ezra, we come to a time when the earlier scriptures are starting to be collected, and the concept of the Old Testament, part of our canon, or of our scripture as we know it today, is starting to emerge. And so, therefore, prophecy is starting to be seen as authoritative. And in fact, if you don't know just how amazing prophecy is, just grapple with this for a moment. 
Cyrus is not only pointed to in the prophetic word, he is called out by name nearly 200 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. It says, he says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundation be laid. And in Jeremiah, there's a prophecy, which we read a little bit ago, Jeremiah 29.10, about the exile being 70 years. It says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. Some point out that maybe it hasn't quite been 70 years, but God in his mercy brought them back sooner. And indeed, God is gracious and he is merciful over and over again throughout scripture. But also I would point out that from the time the temple was destroyed in 586 to the time when it was rebuilt in 516 is exactly 70 years. Their time without a temple lasted 70 years. And so I pause there and ask, why is the temple so important to them? The temple was the place where the people went to meet with God. It's where the means by which God lived And dwelt among his people. Forgiveness was found in the temple through sacrifice. How then can you be forgiven without the temple? How can you know that God is truly with you without forgiveness? The temple was their way out of guilt. So rebuilding the temple was a vital stage in rebuilding the nation around their relationship with God. That's why it makes sense to me that it was 70 years counted in relation to the temple being destroyed and being rebuilt. Because until the temple was rebuilt, you couldn't say that the agony of the exile was truly over. But two things needed to happen in order for the temple to be rebuilt. The people needed to go to Jerusalem. They needed to go. And then they were called to also give. To give resources to make this reconstruction happen. They are to go And they are to give. And once again, the Lord stirs up the heart. He stirs up the heart of the people to return to Jerusalem. Now, I was thinking about this, the Lord stirring up your heart. And it made me think about our summer study, discerning the voice of God. Anyone who joined us for that amazing study by Priscilla Shire remembers that we talked about how the Lord stirs up our hearts sometimes. Sometimes we just feel this still, small whisper. Other times, it's a gut feeling. That's the Holy Spirit. And other times, it's repeated loudly over and over again because God is gracious with us. But it made me think of all the times that the Lord has stirred my heart. So when I graduated from APU, I was about to start Fuller Seminary, and I was really excited because I was going to live on campus. I had a roommate. I had picked out a house we were going to stay in. I had interviewed with the housing place so that we could live there. I started preparing. And then all of a sudden I started to feel that stirring. That something just wasn't right. It started about an uneasy feeling about it, and it grew and it grew. I spoke to someone I trusted about it, and then I listened to that feeling. told my roommate I wasn't going to be living on campus. It was two weeks later that I met my husband. He lived in Chino, and I would have lived in Pasadena. 
He worked five minutes from where my parents lived, my current home. It was right on his drive home. I knew immediately that it was the Lord that had stirred something in me, and thankfully, I listened. But that is certainly not always the case. The Lord stirs me all the time, and I choose to ignore it. All this to say that when the Lord stirs something in you, notice it. Listen to it. I hope that we can be attentive to the Lord, that we can open our ears and open our hearts to what he wants to stir within us. Sometimes it's he puts somebody in your mind that you need to reach out to in some way or another. Other times you're trying to make a huge decision. You feel the Lord leading you a certain way. The lesson this week just reminded me of how much I want to heed his stirring within me because he truly wants our best. I like this quote from Robert File about his commentary on Ezra. He says, The eye of faith is needed to see and to grasp the meaning of what is happening. Ezra often fails to charm at first reading, largely because it's so low-key and factual. Yet as we look at what is happening, and we catch the echoes of earlier scripture, and we see the book in its overall biblical picture— we realize that God is working his purpose out. So God has his hand in all of it. His hand is in stirring Cyrus's heart. His hand is in stirring the heart of those who return to Jerusalem. And his hand is in the bringing of the vessels, which we're going to read right now. Let's look at verses 6 through 11 in our chapter. All the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shesh Bazaar, <laughs> that name, I say that three times fast, um, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes 30, silver dishes 1,000, silver pans 29, gold bowls 30, matching silver bowls 410, other articles 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver, Shesh Bazaar brought all those articles along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So before we dive into just how amazing it is that God not only sends them, but he equips them, let's look back at Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, you might remember the story of Belshazzar. Belshazzar asked for the gold dishes and bowls from the temple to be brought out during a feast, and he used them In the wrong way. He defiled them. He toasted his gods in this exotic way and thereby mocked God. It was at that moment that a hand appears and fingers right on the wall. The real owner of those cups and dishes brings the audience to silence. Daniel, the prophet, is called upon to interpret the writing that appears on the wall. It says, God has numbered the days of your reign, and they have been brought to an end, Belshazzar. 
You have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that was the last night of Belshazzar's life, as Darius the Mede, co-regent with Cyrus, took over Babylon that very night. And this is the last time we've heard of these temple vessels. And here they come up again. However, here, this pagan king returns them to the people to be brought with them for the temple rebuilding project. What amazing providence that God, of God, that these tokens were preserved and then returned. One thing, however, is missing here, and I think it's worth noting. The Ark of the Covenant is nowhere mentioned. Jeremiah warned that one day the Ark would be no more and no replacement would be made. The Ark of the Covenant was the very place where the glory of God was to fall among the people. It was significant, and yet here it's not returned. What we have here in the rebuilding of the temple is a restoration that is only in part. The people are returning, they're restoring their worship in their temple, the very presence of God among them, restoring their nation. But it's not completely restored. God has a bigger and a better picture of restoration yet to come. Because you see, one day the true glory of God is going to take the form of a man and live among us. And then in 2 Timothy 2, when Paul speaks of the vessels of the house of God, those vessels are no longer golden and silver bowls. They are the people of God themselves. The temple vessels were sanctified for particular purposes, and so the people of God are to be sanctified and made right with God, to be used for his purposes in the world. So if you've been in Bible study before, you know I always like to end with application. What does this passage mean for us? How should we live differently in light of it? Well, Jeremiah 29, 11 reads differently in context. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But those plans included exile in Babylon. They include years without the very temple where the, God's presence dwelt with his people. These plans are painful sometimes, but he is always in control. God is always in control. He was in control when COVID wrecked havoc on our world, and he is in control now. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it wherever he pleases. If we truly believe this, what does it mean for our prayer life? Do we pray for the world as if God has anything to say about it? Or do we just pray for our own personal needs? If we believe this and we look out onto our world today, we may not see overt miracles all the time. But we see through the lens of scripture, through the lens of God's promise, through the lens of prophecies that have been fulfilled, that it's all quietly initiated by the Lord who stirs the heart of even a pagan ruler. And he stirs our heart as well. May we be attentive to it. 
So as I thought this morning um, about a song, I always like to end with a song. Um, The one that kept coming up in my search was Lauren Daigle's song, Trust in You. The words just, to me, felt like a prayer that I thought was so appropriate for us today in starting this study. Maybe write them down and pray them every morning as you wake. What would it look like if we truly started our day with this affirmation? It says, truth is, you know what tomorrow brings. There's not a day ahead that you have not seen. So in all things, be my life and breath. I want you, Lord, and nothing less. So let's listen to this song.